in gallery number eight of the Carnegie Museum of Art downtown, uh, there's this giant canvas, six feet tall by 20 feet wide. And if you stand close, as I've actually been yelled at by museum officials for doing, uh, you'll notice that the painting looks almost careless. There's big globs of oil paint smudged up on top of each other, like, like little ocean of colorful waves. It's almost like the artist just emptied all of his paint tubes and smashed them onto the canvas. But then you step back, and those globs of paint blend together into this larger perspective, and suddenly you realize that none of this was random at all. It's this symphony of purples and greens and occasionally the blazing pink. It's a perfect balance of color and light, and it only comes together with proper perspective. And this has become, uh, oh, of course, the painting I'm talking about is Monet's Water Lilies. Uh, it's one of the most famous paintings in all the world. And it's become a guiding image for me when thinking about our text this morning, uh, the calling of Abram, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Abram's life reminds me of Monet's water lilies because it doesn't make any sense until you see it from a broader perspective. Let me show you what I mean. God calls Abram to this audacious mission and makes audacious promises. Look at verse 1 of your text with me. Uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's the call. And now the promise. Verse 2. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Now, uh, for all we know, this could be the first time that Abram has ever heard of the Lord. Uh, we have every reason to believe that he's just this dude hanging out in Mesopotamia, uh, worshiping, he's a polytheist like everybody else. He worships the sky god uh, for rain and the land god for good crops and the sun god and the moon god and the rest of the gang, all their cronies, right? Um, he's just like anybody else. There's nothing specially virtuous about Abram that causes him to be called. But one day, the Lord approaches him, it says. And that name, the Lord, capital O, capital, o, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, I promise you I can spell. Um, that's a placeholder for God's personal name, which in Hebrew is something like Y-H-W-H. Uh, some people pronounce it Yahweh or Yahweh, uh, but for various reasons, we don't actually know how to pronounce it. Um, I could spend an hour nerding out about this, but I'm going to preach a sermon instead. Uh, the point is this. This just isn't just any God who approaches Abram. Yahweh isn't one among a pantheon of gods. He's not like the supreme God and then the other gods are like his cronies. He's God. There's one God. That's the point. He's the God of the whole earth, the whole cosmos, and this God, Yahweh, the Lord, calls Abram to leave everything. Leave his country, his familiar turf, his kindred, his familiar people, and his father's house, his source of identity, and his source of economic sustenance. And he's called to go where? Anyone know? God only knows. 
I don't know how to, if it's possible for me to fully convey how dangerous and crazy this is. Um, here's my best attempt, all right? You're a parent, and your daughter graduates high school and says that instead of college, she's moving to New York City to try to make it as an actress. Maybe you have some concerns. I don't know. You might question her prudence. You might worry about her. Is she going to be okay in the big city? But you know that if worse comes to worse, you can always fire up the Honda Odyssey and uh, you know, drive up to New York City and pick her up and bring her home. It's all going to be okay. Now, imagine that your daughter graduates high school and tells you that she's moving to Afghanistan. We all know that now we're playing a completely different ball game. There's no fallback with this plan. She could be taken hostage, she could be imprisoned, she could starve, she could be murdered, or worse, anything could happen. The only guarantee is that something bad is probably going to happen. That's about the closest I can get to understanding uh, what Abram is being called to undertake here. It's audacious. On the face of it, this is suicidal. He's crossing dangerous terrain. It's full of warlords and bandits and deserts with wild animals. And Terach, his father, can't just fire up the Honda Odyssey because there is no Honda Odyssey. The camels can't get there that fast, guys. Dad can't come pick him up. He's following a call that costs everything to go who knows where. This is audacious. And with it, there's this audacious promise, too. God says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promises to bless Abraham. Uh, that word in that context means something like to provide everything needed to be a whole person and live the full life that God has intended for you. Wholeness, shalom, that's what blessing means in the Bible. And this promise isn't just for Abram either, or Abraham as he's later called. God promises to give Abram's descendants uh, to be a great nation, and somehow through these descendants, somehow, Abram doesn't know, the descendants don't know, but somehow the whole world, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Oh yeah, and there's one little piece of information that I neglected to tell you. Abram and his wife Sarai are barren. They can't have any children. There are no descendants. Father Abraham had many sons. No, he doesn't here. He doesn't have any sons. So God promises to make this old childless couple into a great nation. He promises to bless those who are like beyond blessing. This is crazy. This is audacious. And this is where we, looking back from the 21st century, have an advantage that Abram didn't have. Um, we have perspective. We see the larger picture. Abram just saw his own confusing life. He had a calling and a promise, and neither of them made any sense at all. Uh, he was walking by faith. To go back to our guiding metaphor, uh, Abram just saw this gigantic multicolored smudge of paint. He couldn't see anything close to the big picture. 
but we get to look back. Uh, we get to step back and look at the larger picture that God is painting. We know at least something of what God was up to in Abram's life. Although I will say, we don't know everything that God was up to in Abram's life. But God's a master artist, you know. Uh, we actually worship a God that actually intercedes in the course of human events to fix what's broken and make something beautiful. So last week's message, right? Uh, Alex walked us through Genesis chapter 3. This was God's initial response to human rebellion. We saw that after the fall, um, God made a promise to the woman that he would give her offspring, and he made a promise to the serpent, that's odd, um, that the woman's offspring would crush him. Uh, this is a remarkable promise in itself. Think about this. If you made this amazing world uh, and you brought humans into it and the humans mess it all up, what's the easiest fix to this problem? <laughs> Destroy the humans. Get rid of them. Scrap the, fr the project and start fresh. That's what I would do. But God doesn't do that. The humans rebel against him. So what does he do? He promises to make more humans. What's more, he says that somehow, somewhere down the line, he's going to fix the problem. He's going to eradicate the evil. As we read Genesis, this is the fundamental question. Um, how is God going to do this? How will God fix what is broken in the world? Well, things get worse before they get better. The next humans are worse than the first humans. And the ones after that are worse than them. And so on. So you get a murderer in the second generation, Cain, uh, a polygamist slash serial murderer who's really boastful about it in the third generation named Lamech. And then after that, it spirals and spirals into such depravity that God, um, the only proper response is to drown the world in righteous judgment. So we have a great flood. That's Genesis 7 through 9. Um, but even through the flood, God still keeps the humans. Uh, he still preserves humanity. Noah and his family survive the flood and continue the human project. But guess what happens to them? You get more rebellion still. Uh, Noah, Noah afterward ends up as a drunkard. Um, his son is sexually immoral in some ambiguous way that we're not really sure what happens, but it's not good. Um, and then further on down the line, you get Noah's descendants all congregating together in Babel, the great city, in this kind of mutiny against their creator. They get so confident that they decide they can overthrow God. So after 11 chapters of Genesis, we're really asking, can God fix this? And maybe that's a question that you have about your life. Or about your world? Um, it happened, I think we all ask that question sometimes, whether it's in the wake of um, great personal tragedy or um, something that we thought was going really well that suddenly collapses. Um, can God fix this? Can God fix our country? Can God fix uh, our world? I mean, I mean, even on the bald face of it, we have this ineradicable fact of death. Can God fix that? These are questions that 
despite all of our technology and all of our intelligence as a human race, we don't have answers for. We can't fix it. So can God. Uh, one day when Jenna and I were newly engaged, I decided that I was going to fix her dresser. Um, she had bought this dresser from Ikea. It was brand new. And something, I don't know what happened, but something went wrong in one of the early steps when she was putting this thing together. Um, and so she finished it, which was pretty impressive. Those things are hard to put together. Uh, but the top drawer wouldn't open. And I like to fix things. And um, I was pretty cocky and trying to impress my new fiance. So I'm like, I'll show you how awesome I am. Let me fix this for you. So I go in, and I'm so confident about this. Like, I'm going to crush this and show my, how much of a great handyman I am. I look at the dresser, and I saw that fixing it would involve hours of difficult work. And um, I promptly and boldly declared that it was beyond repair. <laughs> and we threw away a brand new dresser. <laughs> Because I didn't want to descend into the particularities of this thing. I didn't want to crack this open and end up with this being on my hands. Here's the thing. If you really want to fix something, you have to descend into the particularities and unique pieces of that thing. You have to alter, go in and alter the smallest thing, which oftentimes it looks like a disaster when you're doing this. Um, you have to go in and alter the smallest thing in order to bring the biggest change. It's hard, and it's messy. You have to care a lot. And this is how God deals with humanity. He descends into the particular, and he starts with a man in Mesopotamia named Abram. He issues an audacious call with an audacious promise, and then he keeps that promise. He's true to his word. Abraham and Sarah, as they're later called, father Isaac, and Isaac fathers Jacob, and Jacob fathers 12 sons, and these 12 sons grow into a multitude, more than the stars in the sky, and from that multitude comes one who saves the entire world, the Messiah, Jesus. It's all the work of this master artist. God promises to bless this one particular man in some forgotten corner of the ancient Near East. And through that one promise, he manages to bless the whole world. Here's my point. Abram's life is a tiny part of human history. Abram died without understanding the significance of his own life. He died without understanding the significance of his own life. And it's the same with us. We just see the blots of paint. We're, we're, we're caught in it. But we don't see the whole thing. We don't see what he's doing. It looks like a wreck from here sometimes. But God has promised that he's painting redemption into every corner of history, including ours. So... Um, when everything is, looks like it's falling apart, we have to remember how much we can't see. We have to trust that God's at work in some larger way because he's promised that he would. We have a faith that is not based upon feeling, but upon promise. It's not a God that we made up. And, and, and if we're feeling good about that God, if we're feeling spiritual, then everything's good. But when we're not, everything is 
is uh, we're abandoned and alone. No, no, no. We worship a God who made promises. It's stable even when you're not. That's a beautiful thing of the gospel. Um, so before I end, I want to draw attention to something, though, because there's a flaw in my metaphor. This whole time I've been saying that God is a master artist, that history is like Monet's water lilies, and uh, the beauty of God's work can't be seen up close. You need perspective. But there's something cheap about this image. It feels disrespectful to me to look at the Holocaust and say that it's actually really beautiful when you see it from a distance. Um, I watched that video a few weeks ago of George Floyd's death, and I have trouble saying that the image of a white man crushing his black neighbor's head under his knee is actually just a pretty part of the harmonious whole. I just, it just isn't right. When you stare in the face of real evil, um, it's not right to say that there are just some shadow spots as well as bright spots in God's great canvas. That's just trite. It's cheap. There has to be something, some kind of more investment, some kind of uh, justice brought, some kind of atonement, some kind of cleansing of what is gone terribly, terribly wrong. And that's why in the end, when we're talking about these things, when we're talking about following the course of the promises, when we're talking about um, the meaning of human history, we have to look at the cross. God paints his promises with his own blood. The audacious promise to Abram is secured with the blood of Jesus. Blessing and wholeness and peace come to Israel by the blood of Jesus. The blessing of the whole world is purchased with the blood of Jesus, the blood of God. All the wrongs are made right somehow. I can't, I can't explain to you the dynamics of it. But that is where the wrongs are cleansed and everything is made right by the blood of Jesus. God was so invested in this project, in us, in you, that he bled for it. He gave his own life. That's the price of the promises. God's a master artist, but he isn't indifferent or detached from his subject matter. This just isn't just another canvas for him. He put his own son, his own life into our broken world. And that means something. So in sum, there's three takeaways. Um, God is painting a masterpiece with broad brushstrokes with his promises. Even when you can't see him working, he never stops working. And then two, God cares so much about this world that he descended into the particular. He sweats the small stuff. He cares about individuals like Abram and Sarai and you and your neighbor and your family. The little corners of life. And then three, the promises of God are writ large with his own blood. He will not break them. He has not. Even when we are faithless, yet he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our only comfort in life and death. You're the one that we look to 
for the bruised reeds you promise not to break us. You hold us. Your promises stand firm. So would you give us patience? Would you give us perspective in this season to await you, to await your work, to await uh, the revelation of your promises? Would you show us your goodness, Lord? Give us eyes to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.